Our passage this evening is Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. The title of this sermon is To Put in Everything. Normally, I don't like picking titles to sermons because I have to get them done early in the week for the bulletin. And the completion of the sermon doesn't come until later. But this title fits. This sermon is about, this text is about what it means to put in everything. So let's pray that God would be with us as we come to his word and as we read. Gracious God, we know that we are sinners. So we pray a humble prayer right now. Would you help us to see our sin? Would you, by your spirit, let your word cut into our hearts that we might see where we have erred and put our hope in Jesus and in him alone? Would your spirit give us eyes to see and ears to hear the powerful message of your word this evening? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear God's word from Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Just reading this passage is a conviction, is it not? The point of Jesus' words today is generosity. And I want us to think of generosity not just in terms of giving when the offering plate passes, but more in general as a lifestyle, as a way of thinking, as a way of approaching every situation, we would be people of generosity. I want to start with this story from Charles Spurgeon that was quoted by Tim Keller, which I found on a church's website, although I had read it in some other book a while back. So in other words, this is fourth hand. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot, He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? 
The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. This passage, this, that's not a passage, this story does a great job of exposing the motives that go into giving. There really are two motives for giving. There are those who give out of generosity, and there are those who give to receive. So think, What is it about the most generous people you've ever met that makes you describe them as generous? Is it the quantity of their gifts? Or is it how often they give of their time or their money? Or is it the attitude with which they give? Or is it all of the above? We as Christians should desire to grow in generosity. But as you consider what it means to grow in generosity, are you tempted also to grow in visibility? Do you think about how you might be able to give so that others might see your generosity? Do you want to be known as the philanthropist? We know we're not supposed to brag about how we share and how we give, but do you drop hints about the ways you've supported this ministry or that? Or how you've helped out in this way or that? Or how you're unavailable on Friday because you're going to be busy serving someone in need? Aren't we all guilty of wanting our generosity to make us look better? These things reveal that the sinful human inclination to make ourselves look good and look put together is prevalent. We want to look accomplished. We want to look like we're all around good people who are so-called blessed by God with lots of means. That's a way of attaching value to ourselves through our possessions and our actions. There are two approaches to life in this passage. There's the approach that takes, and then there's the approach that gives. The takers are the greedy ones who would take the lives of others to feed themselves. In our passage, it's the scribes who are literally seeking to take Jesus's life. And then there are the givers, the generous ones who would give up their own lives for another. And in our passage today, that's the widow who out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on, as verse 44 says. So first we'll look at the scribes as the takers, and then we'll look at the widow as the giver, and then we will finally look at the one who has put in everything. So let's look at the scribes. These scribes are the takers. These scribes are the ones who give so that they might receive. These are the ones who are in constant pursuit of fulfilling their greedy desires because they're trying to accumulate value and purpose through their earnings. These are the bad shepherds of Israel warned about in the prophets. We've been in a long section on Mark here since the middle of chapter 10, a little review since it's been some time. These conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders, the religious leaders have come to Jesus creating these oppositions. And finally, last time on Christmas Day, we looked at verses 35 through 37, and Jesus finally takes control, and now he's directing the conversation, and he directs them first to who he is. And now he warns them about the bad leaders. So with Jesus in control, he starts to point out how they are the ones not to follow. He says, beware of the scribes. 
Jesus' accusations here are pointed and they are powerful. He's telling the people to be mindful of who they follow. Are they following people who take or are they following people who give? Let's look at the scribes' greed. Jesus gives some specific details. He said, first of all, they like to walk around in long robes. This is not a role play. These are also not regular clothes. These are robes for, that match the dress code of festivities and celebrations. It's like cocktail attire for a wedding reception or going to a black tie event. This is what these scribes wore. It implies a polished look and an attempt to dress to impress. Even the way these people dress is meant to draw attention to themselves and to make others think that they're important. These scribes also like greetings in the marketplaces. It's not just that they like it when their friends come up and say hi. We all enjoy that. But they like it when people go out of their way to want to talk to them, to desire association with them. It makes them feel like they are someone important, someone of prestige. In Matthew's telling of this story, he gives an extra detail. He says, and they love greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They want to know, they want other people to know that they have education and that they're important and they have status and they have social pool. I can imagine somebody walking up to one of them saying, hi, Jeff. And they say, oh, no, you can call me Dr. Johnson. They like the titles. Do you see in yourself, I see in myself, that desire to be known for your accomplishments and to be titled and associated with labels that make you feel important? These scribes were living for that. They also have the best seats in the synagogues, Jesus points out. This is a grave sin because the house of God is not to be a place of social sorting. In James 2, we see the cultural temptation to treat certain types of people better than other types of people. James writes, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This was happening in the synagogues, and the scribes were encouraging it and taking advantage of it. What a dishonor to God's grace. You can still go to old churches in New England and see pew boxes with walled in, with half walls, with names on them. And the families that paid more money got the better pew boxes closer up front. This status of, of where you belong in the church. What a dishonor to God's grace. Because God doesn't look at the status of the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Social priority should never be a thing among God's people. Jesus also calls them out for having the places of honor at feasts. It's happened in those days, and it still happens today. You go to a fundraiser auction or a wedding, and you pay attention to who's sitting with whom. Who's close to the bride's family? Who's sitting with the director of the fundraising organization? These types of seats of honor persist, and some of us feel the weight of being rejected by sitting in a low place, or we seek to sit as close as we can to the important people. I'm going to tell you a story that uh, does not make me look good. I remember a wedding a few years back, and after the ceremony, we proceeded to the reception location, an outdoor venue. We arrived, we looked for our seat assignments, you know how you get, you're given a number, um, and, and we went and found our, our, 
our table number and proceeded to find our table. And so we, we, we went to look for our table. So we walked past the food and past the DJ, of course, past the dance floor, past the head table, of course, past the family's tables, of course. All right, now we're in the friend section. Of course, our, our seat will be here. But we had to walk past what appeared to be the friends' tables beyond the main tent that housed all the festivities to a small tent beyond it where there were two tables, the children's table and our table. And that was where we sat for the reception. And I, playing the games of social standing, was offended in my sinful desire to be treated with highest honor. That also describes the heart of the scribes who sought and received the seats of highest honor at events. But doesn't Scripture change us, charge us, to not think that way? Scripture tells us to think of ourselves, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think of others as more important, and to choose instead the seat of low status, so that you are not shamed when you are taken from the seat of high honor that you think you deserve and are placed where you belong. And what about Jesus? What about Jesus, who as he dined at supper with his disciples, took the position of a servant? He took off his outer garment. He took a towel and tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash their feet. There's no honor in that. That is only service. That is giving of himself. Jesus continues his accusations against these scribes, and he says they devour widows' houses. This indicates to us that they were willing to take advantage of the most vulnerable people in Jewish society. Widows had no way to take care of themselves. They were in especially difficult situations, many of them, without a husband to provide financial or social resources. And this is why families and churches, especially early Christian churches, were commanded specifically to look out for widows. And there could have been a handful of ways that the scribes took advantage of the widows. We're not exactly sure how, but it could have been that they charged exorbitant fees for legal proceedings upon the death of their husbands. It could be that they were given uh, a position of a trustee over the estate and then manipulated and took the estate for themselves. It could be simply through continual nickeling and diming of these widows who showed hospitality. Jesus continues and says, these same people who sit in such seats of honor and like such praise, also make a show out of their long prayers. They have ulterior motives when they pray. They're not actually coming before the the God of grace to ask or to pour out their hearts. They're coming to make a show of what they're doing. The intent of their long prayers was the same as their mistreatment of the widow's houses. They're trying to accumulate worldly praise. The prayers were not done with the sincerity that we find in Jesus' prayers. When Jesus prayed, he sought the will of the Father. He submitted his desires to the Father's will. He encouraged and uplifted others. No, their prayers reveal the core heart issue that is shared among this whole list of wretched accusations that Jesus brought against the scribes. Here's the heart condition. They were concerned about nothing but their self-exaltation. They were concerned in their social interactions, in their charity involvement, and in their religious duties about nothing but their own self-exaltation. They are all about their greedy glory. Everything was manipulated to make them look better. Jesus warns that if you too are seeking to build an enviable reputation among your colleagues and peers, 
through your smooth talk, through your intelligent jargon, through your impressive clothes. If you're trying to come across as a good person by coming to church, by serving the poor, then you have followed the condemnable leadership of bad shepherds like these. Jesus says, beware of the scribes. Brothers and sisters, let's watch out what we let our hearts love. Let's be careful who we use as examples. Are we following and listening to what the world says makes us important and valuable? Or are we listening to what the gospel says makes us valuable and important to our God? Let's not follow any longer these useless social status schemes. Let's look away from the influences around us that are pursuing such self-glorifications as the scribes did. Let's put to death the desires of the flesh. Let's die to ourselves. Flee this way of thinking. You know, as Mark tells the story of Jesus' life, this is his last public statement before his trial. This is a warning against the most natural inclination in our world and in our hearts, the inclination to be important and to impress other people. And Jesus is calling us out as his last public statements in the book of Mark. And Jesus concludes and says, yes, this course of action too leads to death. If you pursue that type of life as the world does and as the scribes did, you will also receive the greater condemnation. That means the very significant condemnation or the abundant judgment that is spiritual death without any righteousness on your ledger on that day that you stand before God. Beware of the scribes. Do not think of yourself like they do, like they did, and do not think of yourself the way the world does. They are the takers. Instead, Jesus moves on to an example of someone who does get it. The scribes in such great leadership positions should have understood, yet here comes yet another unlikely disciple who gets it, and it's the widow in verses 41 through 44. Jesus, still out in the public place in the temple, begins to talk specifically with his disciples. And as he's teaching them, he's about to show them an example from this widow. When Jesus says, come follow me, as he called his disciples, he's about to say, look, this is how it's done. And he provides a setting here. Mark explains to us the setting. First of all, there are lots of rich people putting in a lot of money into the treasury. That treasury or that offering box, it was a trumpet-shaped receptacle made either of silver or gold. And people would come in and put their money in there. The, the, the literal word is they would throw in their money. And either it was for priestly services or it was for gifts to the temple. And so this is how the Levites, the priests, were able to make their living. And the, similarly, the scribes lived largely on people's donations. And so Jesus and his disciples were sitting there watching these rich people give a lot. And one commentator said it might have been a pretty common thing for people to sit and watch. A normal public spectacle. And it is good that these people gave. In fact, Jesus never condemns them for giving. He doesn't say they should not give. His point is, you can look at how these people give, but Jesus is saying you must look at the widow. That's his real point of exhortation and encouragement. So let's go learn from her. Because the way Mark sets this up, his, his language really makes us pause. He says, Then there came one widow, poor, 
All right, so that's what it looks like when you read through this. And so on one hand, you have those with abundance who give out of their abundance and don't even realize it in their budget or in their lifestyle that they've given any money. And then when they put in their offerings, there's this loud metallic gong sound that rings out from the golden trumpet-shaped box through the court and all those nearby hear the generosity of the rich. Then there came one widow, poor. You can see first by her appearance that she's poor and she comes to the box and there is no loud ringing of the metal, but two high-pitched, quiet clinks. These two clinks were the sound of two very small coins, literally meaning scales, less than a half an inch in diameter made of copper. Mark explains for his readers, most likely his readers in Rome, that those two coins make up a quadrant, which is a, a, a coin they would have understood in Rome as being a very small amount, the smallest coin in circulation in the Roman Empire. It's enough to buy a meager meal, not even a burrito bowl before inflation. It's worth perhaps a dollar or two in our current American economy. That is, it's negligible for the temple operations And it's negligible compared to what the other donors were giving as their coins clanked loudly in the box. Jesus speaks here. And Mark gives us all the marks of importance because Jesus, first of all, called his disciples to himself. He says, come, listen. And then he opens by saying, truly, I say to you. And he says something profound. He says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. How is that possible? What does he mean that she gave more? We can quantitatively show that Jesus was wrong in the amount that she gave compared to those who had given. But Jesus continues explaining. He says, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus is not talking about the monetary value of the gift. He's talking about the heart of the giver. This widow has given her heart more than any one of those others who has contributed large sums out of their abundance. Proper giving is to be measured not by the quantity of the gift, but by the heart, the sacrifice, the dedication, that is the faith of the giver. It's important to note that this passage is not blasting people for being rich. Jesus warns against the dangers of wealth in other passages like the story of the rich, the rich young ruler in chapter 10. His point here is to address when we have the wrong metric for determining what is a meaningful gift. We have the wrong metric for determining what is a meaningful gift. We think that if there are more zeros after the number, it is a more meaningful gift to the church or to the ministry or to whomever. But those who give more dollars worth of offerings are not worth more in God's kingdom. And those who give fewer dollars worth of offerings are not worth less in God's kingdom. It doesn't matter if it's a Palestinian economy, a Roman economy, or an American economy. The amount that you give is not what impresses God. It's the heart behind the giving. Have you ever thought, I can't give the way other people give. I don't want to embarrass myself by just giving a small amount. I can't give the hundreds of dollars to the church or to that ministry. It's not worth embarrassing myself. Or have you ever thought, once I get enough time to really invest in the church, then I'll invest in the church. No, let me charge us all. Give those few dollars as a joyous offering to your God. 
Give those 15 minutes before or after the service to help with setup or tear down. You know, as a church plant, we need that type of giving. And do these things as a reaction of gratitude for God's blessing you. It's important. Mark tells us that she put in two coins. If you had been in her condition, such a state of poverty, wouldn't it have been natural to just put in one? After all, it's 50% and pocket the other one. But she put in both. And what that emphasizes is that she gave everything and she withheld nothing from her God. Jesus is saying that the heart's approach to giving must be the attitude of surrendering all. So, I don't know if you're as convicted as I am at this point. When you think about how you give, do you say, oh, I gave the 10%, I did my duty, that's enough. Or, or even, do you think better of yourself when you give not just the 10%, but hey, we gave 15 or 20% this month. That's not generosity if it's given out of abundance. And we cannot dare just limit this to the discussion of money. What about time? How much of it do you give to serving the kingdom of God? You know, it's hard to make meals for church gatherings, for potlucks, for Wednesday nights, for fellowships like we're going to have after service tonight. It takes an extra trip to the grocery store. It takes hours of prepping and cooking sometimes, and it takes a toll on the wallet. But you know what? So many of y'all have been so faithful to continue to give and to bring food and to host and to be so hospitable. And so I see many of you giving even when it's difficult. I don't see the numbers in terms of who gives what in the offering here. And that's, that's a good thing because I don't need to know the numbers. None of us wants me to know the numbers. But I have seen so much generosity. And, and what about another element of our time? What about resting from our labors? What about ceasing from our worldly pursuits? How much do we give to the world versus how much do we give to the church? And how much do we give to actually taking a break from trying to accumulate? Do you give just enough half a day on Sunday? Or those who are really good both morning and evening on Sunday to feel like you've done your minimum duty for God? But even if you give the whole day and keep the other six for yourself, you've missed the whole point. We give God one day because all seven are his. We, got, we give God a portion of our money out of not just our abundance, but out of our need. We give him our limited resources to acknowledge that all of what we have is his. So come, gather with God's people and be encouraged and encouraged. Think and talk about him when you sit and when you rise. Write his words on the doorposts of your home. Be constantly soaking wet in the truth of the gospel. Proper generosity, as the widow exhibited, gives out of a transformed heart and a mind. She gave because she had been changed. The scribes gave so that they might be changed by their wealth. Jesus uses this one poor widow as an example of one who truly gives generously. She is one of the givers, not the takers. She is one of the generous ones who would give her own life for another as the scribes were literally seeking to take Jesus' life. She's the example of a true disciple. She's the one who has left all that she had and followed with all her heart and mind and soul and strength. She is the one who has denied herself, taken up her cross and followed her God. 
She has found her value in God and God alone, and therefore she can give generously and completely in trust of him. So you and me, what do we do? Do we follow the example of the widow? No. We follow the example of the one that she followed. And it's not simply an example. Jesus used her as an example, but he used her as an example that pointed right back to himself because as she put in everything she had, so Mark is preparing us to see that Jesus is about to put in everything he has to save his people. He's about to give up his life, die on the cross for his people. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate gift. Jesus is the one who has put in everything because if you and I work really hard to follow the widow's example and to give out of everything that we have, guess what? We have still not put in everything because we are selfish and sinful people. We cannot give enough to earn ourselves a spot. You see, that widow didn't earn herself a spot either. She gave out of the abundance that she had in her God. So you and I give out of the abundance that we have received from Jesus. And as we think about what Jesus is about to undergo, as he's about to put in everything, he's about to put in his whole life to the point of death. Jesus, this God who became man, who made himself nothing and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, he denied himself and took up his cross and gave up his life so that his people, you and me, might not die, but have eternal life. That's giving generously. And the ones that he died for are not the ones who know how to play the world's social games. Let me talk to you, a bunch of outcasts. You're loved. Yes, even you who feel that you don't have what others have. Yes, even you who cannot give as much as other people can give in terms of numerical monetary value. Yes, even you, you who believe about yourself the lies that the world and Satan have said to you time and again that you're a less than, that you're a have-not, that you're a nobody, that you're a sufferer, that you're an unrespectable one, that you're an unlovable one. Even you, Jesus, has given himself for. His giving doesn't inspire us to give our lives away and thus earn a spot in heaven too. No, his giving accomplished that salvation in God's presence that we can have access to our God in heaven. When he gave up all that he had and he said, it is finished, your sins were paid for. He didn't give us a good example to live up to. He did it all. He earned the rights and the privileges of access to God and he put in everything he had so that we who believe might have his winnings. This is an unmovable reality founded upon Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, then we can, like the widow, give it all back. I pray that we would be enabled to give out of our faith. That if you've not looked to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that you would do so because only then do you find true fulfillment. This world is only going to disappoint you because they're going to tell you to keep taking and taking and taking and then all those things are going to disappoint you and they will not make you more valuable. Only Jesus gives you that worth. Trust him with everything that you have. We have a sure foundation, a real hope that the world does not offer. We've been completely and truly and really fulfilled by Christ and by his spirit. So let us live 
Having been transformed out of the kingdom of darkness and taken into the kingdom of light, let's go share generously with our whole hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength. In the name of Jesus, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are weak, poor, unimportant people. Yet the most important, prestigious, powerful, authoritative being in all existence came down and put it all in. Put in everything he had and died for us. Would that truth change us? Would we set our hope in that alone and realize that this world is only worth letting go of so that we might hang on to Christ as he holds on to us and will not let us go and will bring us to completion on that last day when we're in your presence for eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.